turn. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we are going to talk about uh, what could be a, a difficult or a heavy subject tonight, but it's where the Bible has taken us. In 1 Corinthians 5, and we're going to take two weeks to discuss the topic of church discipline. Now those two words, church discipline, can conjure up some really uh, varying images in our minds based on maybe your prior experience with this topic, church discipline. I think, I always worry that when I bring up the topic of church discipline, number one, it is discipline, but it, uh, discipline has its own connotation these days. But I think a lot of people, when they think of church discipline, their mind goes to like a, a scene from the Scarlet Letter. I don't know if you're familiar with that famous piece of literature. It describes a young girl in a community several hundred years ago who was found out to be pregnant out of wedlock, and her community uh, forced her to wear a Scarlet Letter A on her to mark her out as an adulteress. And so I think sometimes that maybe when we hear the idea of church discipline, that our mind goes to something like that. It's a public shaming of people's actions to kind of uh, shame them into correction and conviction. But what I want us to see tonight is that is not entirely a great way to look at church discipline. It's certainly not a biblical way to look at church discipline. And so what I want to do on the very outset, so we really understand what we're talking about. When I say the words church discipline, from here on out, I want to give you my best attempt at a definition. I'd encourage you to write this down. But here's what church discipline is. Church discipline is a congregational decision to remove someone from church membership and bar them from the privileges of membership for the purpose of repentance and restoration. There's a lot more that goes into it, but that is the best way I can define that for you tonight. I want to explain to you, uh, I want to give you a backup background to this topic of church discipline because I think it really needs some background. When you read the New Testament, um, I did this several years ago, I read the whole New Testament and I looked for all of the imperative commands in the New Testament. It's an interesting study because what rises to the top is is an emphasis on things that you and I don't often think are an emphasis in the Bible. But when you read the New Testament, you find this idea of church discipline in almost every book of the New Testament. Jesus certainly talks about it in Matthew 18. We'll get there actually pretty soon when we return to our Matthew series here at the, uh, in the next month. Paul teaches on it here in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Uh, And just off the top of my head, this is what I remembered, where it's taught in the New Testament. Galatians talks about church discipline. Thessalonians talks about church discipline. Both pastoral epistles talk about church discipline. It seems to be referred in the last two verses of the book of James, church discipline is. And I think that the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 through 3 seem to be kind of a congregation-wide church discipline by Jesus himself. What's also interesting, and you could do your own reading on this, that when you read church history, that when early Christians are trying to define what is a biblical church, they don't define it in the same ways you and I did, do. 
they often define biblical churches by those who practice church discipline. That if they were trying to identify what was a true church, it was very important historically to Christians to look for a church that was very serious about making sure those who were in their membership were truly professed believers, not just in name, but in lifestyle. And so if they saw a church that wasn't practicing church discipline and were allowing anybody to partake of the Lord's Supper, even those who were living in open sin and such, um, they wouldn't have identified that church as a true biblical church. But what's interesting to me is that though historically Christians have viewed church discipline so importantly, could we all agree that the subject of church discipline has almost entirely dissipated from the American church? It's not talked about. I've had conversations with pastors in different stripes and denominations in our town, and you could just see the eyes glaze over when you bring up the topic of church discipline because it's so incredibly foreign to so many different people. And I just want you to ask yourself this question. I don't know everyone's church background, but I want you to ask yourself if you've ever seen this happen in a church. The way it's described here. I don't know about you, I've seen things that are called church discipline that don't fit this definition. They were decided by the pastor, not the congregation. They weren't for the purpose of repentance and restoration. They were exposing sin to a, of a believer that had already repented and was trying to work on it. And I would guess that few of us have seen church discipline happen biblically at all. I could be wrong about that. I could be just projecting my own history in the church, but I would say that that's probably pretty common, that most of us have not seen what is described in 1 Corinthians 5 happen in our own church background. And so we have to ask this question. If church discipline is so prominent of a topic in the New Testament, it was so important historically to Christians for thousands of years, why on earth do we not see it done at all or properly in most churches? Well, the answer to that question is only two different answers. Either we think that we have less problems with sin in 2023 than the first century Christians and historical Christians do, or someone, some churches have drifted from a biblical model of the church. We have to ask ourselves, which one do you think is more likely? And just as likely as it not being practiced at all, I think all of us probably have seen, and you'll probably identify better at the end of the two messages, that we've seen church discipline practiced incorrectly. I myself have, perhaps you have. A strong-armed pastor excommunicating someone without a vote of the church or a church that thought church discipline was publishing the sins of those who had committed a certain type of sexual sin to shame them into repentance. These things, as we'll discover, are not what church discipline is, 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 is really in its definition. And so since so many churches have ignored the Bible's teaching on the subject, and maybe all of us are rusty, on the understanding of this subject of church discipline, I think it's really good for us to take two weeks to cover what is probably 
the most comprehensive passage in the New Testament on church discipline. It doesn't cover every part of it. Matthew 18 probably supplies the other section of it, and we'll cover that in a few months. But I want us to take some time looking at this, and I want us also to be encouraged. If you feel like this church or the church in general has dropped the ball on church discipline, we're not alone, because the church at Corinth did too. If you've been with us, you know that Paul in the first four chapters of Corinthians has been addressing the division in the church, specifically the division over the personalities that different people in the church gravitated towards. Paul, Apollos, Peter, right? And we've seen Paul attack that from several different angles. And so chapter five begins a new section of Paul's letter where he's gonna begin to address things that if you look at the end of chapter number four, Verse 21, he seems to indicate that there are some issues in the church that if they don't fix before he comes, it will change whether he comes to them, look at verse 21, with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness. What is he saying there? He's saying that you have some issues in your church, I think the division being one of them, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, that if you don't fix this, I will come and I will clean house. It's a strong statement, by the way, on pastoral authority. And I think Paul in chapter five is beginning to lead into a section on his letter where he's now addressing a lot of the issues that maybe they didn't think were issues. Or as we'll see in chapter seven and following, Paul is going to be answering what seems to be some questions they had or some misunderstandings they had of Paul's prior teachings. And so what we're going to see in this passage tonight is that I think Paul starts off by addressing one of the most serious issues first. Look at verse number one, where Paul kind of uncovers the situation in chapter five. He says, it is is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. And notice how serious the sin is. And such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. It's interesting to me that the Lord brings us to this passage that has so many similarities with the passage this morning of Ham uncovering his father's nakedness. And so what seems to be going on in verse number one, I'll just kind of give you the the 21st century explanation, is that there was someone in their church who it was known openly was sleeping with likely his stepmother. And Paul says, this is sinful by a biblical standard, of course. But he says, this is so wrong that even pagans, Gentiles, would look at this type of action and say, this is messed up. This sleeping with a stepmother, I mean, we don't even do that. And we've got all sorts of stuff messed up compared to you Christians. And Paul is saying that this type of sin was habitually present in the congregation of the church at Corinth. And he's going to tell them how to address this serious sin. And I'll give you this framework next week on part two that is outward, serious, and unrepentant. And so the passage in 1 Corinthians 5 breaks down into four headings. We're going to cover the first two tonight and the second two next Sunday night. Tonight, we're going to cover the right attitude behind church discipline. 
and will cover the right action of church discipline. What is the heart that a congregation should have toward sin? Because ultimately, though Paul is prescribing a specific course of action here, what is most disturbing is the congregation's view towards sin is miscalibrated. And then he's gonna tell them that if you have the right heart about sin, it should lead in this particular instance in ones that are similar that are described in verse 11, it should lead to a certain type of action. And we're gonna spend a lot of time phrase by phrase breaking down these two headings. Let's read this passage together and begin our study tonight. Continuing in verse two, he says, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have, I verily have judged already, as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, in my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So what is Paul prescribing in this passage? First of all, in verses one through two, we need to learn what the right attitude is towards sin. Verse number two is pretty direct. He says that their attitude currently was an attitude of arrogance. You are puffed up. Verse number six talks about that they were glorying in this sin. And I'll be honest, I'm not entirely sure why Paul says to this congregation that they were arrogant about this sin. There's a couple possibilities. Maybe it was that they have adopted a twisted view of God's grace that actually churches are more and more beginning to adopt, where they were proud of not condemning the sins of certain sins of the day in their church. Can you think of some people who might fit in that category? That they're very proud that they don't name certain sins. In fact, there's a church not far from our church that on their website proudly uh, says that they tolerate and they do not condemn certain sins that the Bible will actually condemn in the very next chapter, 1 Corinthians. Maybe this, this is prideful attitude. No, our church, we don't condemn people we accept people for who they are. We're better. Perhaps he's saying that they were proud in other areas of their life. We noticed this in chapter number four and chapter number three, didn't we? That Paul's main accusation to them is they're so proud and puffed up that they are not exhibiting the spirit of Christ. They're exhibiting something completely different. And so maybe what Paul is saying is that their pride in other areas has blinded them and, and taken their focus away from the sin in their congregation and has shifted their focus onto other trivial matters. I don't know exactly what Paul is particularly giving as a reason for the fact that they're proud, but I think what this passage is describing for us is that the right attitude that we should have towards sin in our congregation is not to be proud, but to be mourning sin. The right attitude for Sin towards sin in our congregation should be mourning that leads to action. You might write that down. The right attitude you and I should have towards sin is mourning that leads to action. 
That's my next point. That's what Paul is saying here, is that we should have an attitude towards sin that is not just sad about sin. No, 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 no. But a mourning of sin that leads to action against sin. And and I think that this reminds us of the words of Jesus, doesn't it? What did Jesus say? Blessed are they that mourn. Jesus says there's blessing when we mourn over sin. But I think what Paul is laying down here is that it's more common for people to adopt an unbiblical attitude towards sin. And they say things like this in their mind. And pay attention really clearly because you may have said this in your own mind yourself. Why does it matter to me what somebody does in the privacy of their bedroom or their home? Why is it my problem that that church member is living in sin? They're accountable to God themselves, so I'll just pray for them and let them figure it out. But what I want to teach you tonight is that Paul is repudiating and rejecting that attitude. That what I think Paul is laying down here is that there's a spectrum that you and I can fall on when it comes to dealing with sin. I want you to put that graphic up, Judson, because I think it's helpful for us to recognize that our attitude towards sin can fall on a spectrum. I'm not sure if you can read it, but I'm going to read it for you. Where the Corinthians were at, it was here, arrogance and tolerance. And Paul is encouraging them to come over here where their attitude is mourning that leads to action. But though I think the Corinthians fall over here, there are congregations that can fall in this area. They can have, they're not bothered by sin and therefore they take no action. That's better than tolerance and arrogance. But there's also this other category that I think most Christians fall in. They're bothered by sin, but they don't take action. But what Paul is pushing us to have, and the real issue at stake here in the church of Corinth, and the real issue you and I have to get right, if we're going to even come close to practicing what the Bible commands our church to practice, is we have to have an attitude towards sin that is not just bothered by sin, but that as a church, we should be willing to act on that mourning and that discomfort that we should feel when a professed Christian is contradicting and and becoming a hypocrite in their lifestyle. So I, I ought to ask you tonight, does it bother you when professed Christians and people who would be on the membership role of this church continually forsake the assembling of their, themselves for months? Does that bother you? Does it bother you when someone who is a member of Fellowship Baptist Church, if this is the case, I don't know, is known as a hypocrite in their community? Would it bother you when fellow church members repeatedly show sinful responses after multiple attempts to correct their sin? Does it bother you if someone who's on the role of membership in this church who has passed through the waters of baptism in that tank now claims to be an atheist or an agnostic? Does that bother you? The passage here calls us to not just be bothered, but in certain instances to take action. If we have the right heart towards sin, which is not an attitude of indifference or tolerance, but mourning that leads to a constructive type of action, Paul says that it will lead, in extreme cases, to the proper execution of church discipline, which he gives to us 
in verses three through five. So verses three through five, I want you to see the right action of church discipline. The right action of church discipline. And I, I wanna just break this down real small bites. Now, let me preface this to say that not all of the counsel of God on church discipline is revealed in this one passage. Jesus gives us a process of confrontation over sin that we ought to follow as Christians that begins individually, then brings one person, then involves a larger group, and then involves the church. Paul here does not seem to describe those same steps. So there's two possibilities for that. Either Paul is taking for granted that those steps have happened, or I think just as likely there are certain cases of very serious sin that we don't have any reason to believe someone's repentance because of how long standing of a background it is that the church should take immediate action on sin. We could workshop this at a different time, but I think that might be what Paul is indicating here. And so what Paul describes, first of all, in verses three through five, is that church discipline, I'll give you the definition again, is a congregational decision to remove someone from church membership and to bar them from the privileges of membership. We see that here in verses three through five. And I want you to see this. See in verse number two, that at the end of verse number two, he describes a removal from membership. Look at the end of verse number two. He says that he that had done this deed, what's the next phrase? Might be taken away from among you. Verse number five also describes this action. He says in verse number five, to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. If you want a good cross-reference, you can write down and look up later, 1 Timothy 1.20, which by the way is addressing a church discipline instance when a man denied a fundamental doctrine of Orthodox Christianity. Hymenaeus and Alexander denied the resurrection, and so Paul called Timothy to remove them, or he, I can't remember, he says he removed them from membership. First Timothy 1.20 uses the exact same language. He says, I delivered them to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Verse number 11 describes to us what, that this barring from membership should extend more than just on a membership list. That look at what Paul says in verse number 11. That he says, I have written unto you not to keep company, Look at verse number um, 13. Put away that person from among yourselves, right? Verse number nine, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company, not to dine with. It's, it's literally a, a term that describes fellowship. And so what Paul is describing here is this removal from church membership and a removal from church fellowship. Now, what we have to recognize is that in each of these sections, Paul is emphasizing that a removal from church membership is a congregational decision. A congregational decision. Notice how Paul says that. He himself has made up his mind about the situation. Verse number three, he's judged it, though he's not there. He says, I, have, I am very certain this is what you should do, but notice that he himself does not have the authority to excommunicate this person. Look at verse four. He says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, when ye are gathered together. 
What's he describing there? A church meeting, a church service. When you're gathered together, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. It's a congregational decision. Now, this is not described in the text, but I'm just gonna try and piece together all that the Bible teaches about this and help you understand what this should look like. What should this look like? I think the most faithful practice of church discipline I've seen is by a church that followed these type of steps. That when sin that is outward, serious, and unrepentant is discovered, the person who knows about that, without telling anyone else, should go to that brother or sister in Christ with a heart of love and concern and confront them when their life contradicts their profession. You don't involve the pastor. You have the Holy Spirit within you. You deal with it before you ever talk to someone else about it. But then if that person doesn't respond, you bring a pastor or a deacon or a godly person to church, and there's something serious about bringing more than one person into a room and saying, listen, brother or sister in Christ, what you are doing is very sinful and destructive, and I want to plead with you to repent of this action. And then you maybe involve a larger group of people, the body of elders or pastors in a church or deacons in a church. And then when it become, comes to a congregational decision, here's how I think it faithfully shows up is that in a business meeting in the church, the pastor, whoever, shares only what is necessary to know for the church to make a decision on this, but a decision's not made immediately. No. The details of the situation are exposed, whatever is on a need-to-know basis, so that the congregation themselves can act and try and convince this person to repent of their sin. And if they don't respond then at a future church meeting, the church votes to remove them from membership of the church. Now think about it. As a church, if we receive someone into our membership, what do we have to do? We vote on it. By the way, this is a side topic. That's not in our bylaws and should be in our bylaws. So maybe we need to address that. But if we vote to receive people into our membership, then it only makes sense that in order to remove someone from membership, it has to be a congregational decision as well. Are we following the logic here? And so that's what Paul is describing here. But what he's also describing is when we remove them from the membership, it's more than just erasing their name on a church membership roll. That what he is describing in verse 11 and all these other verses that use that word company is that it should bar them from a certain type of Christian fellowship that Paul is saying, literally the word that he uses is that you should not eat with this person. Don't eat with them. Now that raises some important questions, doesn't it? To what extent do we carry out this command? Like, is Paul saying that we shouldn't have thanksgiving with somebody who's under church discipline? Well, here's the framework. And I, I'm not gonna apologize for building this out more. Does eating with someone at Thanksgiving give them the impression that you are affirming them as a Christian? No! I eat with my aunt so-and-so who's an atheist. It doesn't mean I think she's a Christian. If this person's a member of your family and they're under discipline from the church, does that mean you can't have family dinner with them anymore? No, you're not affirming them as a Christian. Does this mean that we cannot share the meal of the Lord's Supper together? Yes. See, as you haven't caught on to it, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're saying we are a Christian. If we're allowing them to take it, we're saying they're a Christian. 
There could be other type of Christian fellowship that would stop when someone is under discipline. I don't know what that looked like, but what we ask ourselves and the principle that we carry away from Paul's writings here is, is this fellowship, is this event affirming them as a Christian when our church has congregationally said, we don't think you're a Christian. You're not acting like one. That's the, that's the framework that Paul gives us to make this decision. Does a church vote, allowing someone to vote in our congregation, make, us, make them think that we affirm their Christianity? Yes. So they can't vote, right? There's, there's questions we have to ask. I hope you're getting the idea that this is pretty serious. Are we getting the idea? Very serious. Removal from church membership is a statement that says this. You have habitually acted in a way that has led the church to lose confidence that you are truly a Christian. That's what church discipline says. That someone has acted in a way over a span of time. The Bible doesn't define it because sometimes it's quick. Sometimes there's grace to have a long period of time. But church discipline says this. When we vote, if we vote to remove someone from membership, here's what we're saying. This person has acted in such a way that our church no longer has confidence that they are truly a Christian. Now, if you're a certain type of person, that type of statement might lead to some mental pushback in your mind. And rightly so. You might have questions and accusations like this. Pastor Mike, the Bible says we're not to judge. The Bible says we're supposed to be loving. I heard a famous pastor say in the last couple of weeks that Christians, and he said this in relation to sin, Christians should draw circles, not lines. You might say something like this, pastor, if we vote to remove this person from membership, aren't we going to scare people away from the faith and make them go further from God? That's a valid concern. Or you might say something like this, pastor, who do we think we are to say whether or not someone is a Christian. After all, only God knows. Those are fair concerns. And that's why Paul explains that the congregation, this is my next point, is given the authority of Christ himself to exercise this serious decision. The congregation is given the authority of Christ himself to exercise this serious decision. This is what I think Paul would say to all of those concerns. Pastor, we shouldn't judge. We, we can't judge someone's heart. Those things, Paul says, and he pushes back. He says, no, Christ himself has delegated the authority to affirm someone's profession of faith to the church itself. It shows up in this passage and very uh, famously in the passage Jesus gives us. Verse number three, first of all, Paul says apostolically that he himself has made a judgment on this. So that weighs in the minds of the Corinthians at least. Verse number four, he says that they come together and they make this decision in the name of the Lord Jesus. You might remember that when Jesus says that, that is conveying a sense of authority. The name of the Lord Jesus, that carries authority. It was by the name of the Lord Jesus that demons and disease were cast out of people. 
And Paul is saying that that same authority rests on the congregation to cast people out of membership. Verse number four also describes that the congregation is given the power of the Lord Jesus. Friend, that is not a light statement. That's serious. And that should help and encourage us and and give us confidence if Christ himself is lending his authority and his power. But notice that Jesus himself said this. I won't reference fully Matthew 18, but I think it's important for us to read it. Look at the screen at Matthew 18, verses 18 through 20. And there's a phrase there that you may not maybe understood like, I, I didn't understand this for a long time. What Jesus really was saying here. So this is after that famous passage where Jesus says, go between you and him alone, bring somebody, bring it to the church. And after, immediately following that, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever ye loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Do you notice there that in the mind of Jesus, that a decision by the church on earth is connected somehow to heaven? He's saying, you are in agreement with heaven. And then he says, again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Look at verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now you and I think of that as like, you know, something that makes us feel warm fuzzies. But what Jesus is saying there is to his disciples that when you exercise church discipline, Don't think you're making that decision alone. The presence of Christ is with you. You are given his authority and his power to do this very serious thing. In that same passage, Jesus also says to his disciples, the same thing he says to Peter individually in chapter 16, that he says, unto you are given the keys of the kingdom. What do keys symbolize? They symbolize ownership and authority. And he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus is saying in the context of church discipline that what the church decides, it may not be perfect judgment, but it has the authority of Christ behind it. And so when you and I have to enter into this, which I hope we don't, but let's be realistic, we will. If we're a biblical church, this will happen at some point. This will be an excruciating and sad decision, which is why I think most people don't practice it. But we have to make a decision as a church, and I do as a pastor, whether the difficulty of church discipline, we will allow that to lead to our own disobedience to Christ's command. But we must remember that if God calls us to do this, that Christ has promised his special grace, that Christ has given us his wisdom. Chapter two, verse 16 says that we have the mind of Christ. Now, what about that concern that someone might have that church discipline is unloving? What do we say to that? Well, we have to remember that church discipline is not done to shame, or to just publish, it is done for the purpose of repentance and restoration. And that's what verse number five teaches us, that church discipline is for the purpose 
of restoration. It's for the purpose of restoration. This is a very important phrase in verse 5. Let's look at it again. He describes church discipline. To deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I think in some ways he's quoting Jesus there in Matthew 18. That, that word that conveys purpose. What is the purpose of church discipline? That the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Think about this. Just as God our Father disciplines those whom he loves, so the church in its discipline is acting in love to bring back a brother or sister who has gone astray, reestablishing that person in right fellowship and rescuing them from destructive patterns of life. So is church discipline merely to punish somebody who made a bad choice to sin? No. It is for the purpose of conviction of sin and for them to sense the seriousness of their sin so that they may come back and be restored into fellowship with God's people. And what was amazing about this passage is that in 2 Corinthians, Paul will then describe how this man was restored. This dude who is more immoral than the pagans was brought back into the church and they had some issues restoring him. But nonetheless, it worked. It worked. It was the most loving thing that church could have done. Now, how does this inform our practice of church discipline? Number one, just a thought. And here's where I think a lot of people go wrong, especially in independent Baptist circles I'm aware of, is that there's a mistaken thought that church discipline is basically us publishing the sins of somebody when they cross a certain moral boundary. But never the question is asked, is this person repentant? If, for instance, a brother or sister comes to you, or comes to me, says, Pastor, I've committed this sin, I've cheated on my spouse, or whatever, I've, I've been a, a cheat and a lie for years, would you help me get right? In general, we don't have any reason to remove that person from membership. Why? because they're trying to be restored themselves. We don't need to publish nothing. We don't need to make it more public than it needs to be. I think the Bible's pretty clear that sin is on a need-to-know basis. It's on a need-to-know basis. Now, there are some extraordinary circumstances, like, for instance, if a man has cheated on his wife for 30 years, you know, we probably should excommunicate him and let him work through those processes before we store him back to membership. If, if a person has committed a very public crime against a child, we probably should excommunicate that person for a variety of reasons, one of which being the legal protection of the church, saying we don't think this person's a Christian, he's not our membership, and we will restore him to fellowship when he's shown the fruits of repentance. And so this framework helps us understand that we need to take this seriously, and if someone is headed back for restoration, we don't need to discipline them. But number two... The reason church discipline is loving is that if you really read between the lines in verse number five in other verses, the New Testament gives us an understanding of, of conversion that says this, that those who persist in unrepentance are destined for hellfire. You could read 2 Corinthians 7.10 in your own spare time. That what Paul is saying and what Jesus is saying when they talk about delivering someone to Satan 
is that they're saying it is not characteristic of a true Christian to live a life in persistent unrepentance. And if you want to let them just go, listen, if you want to just let someone go, then here's what you're saying. They can go to hell. But if you want to be part of the process in which God draws them back to show the fruits of the Spirit, you very well could be saving someone from hell. I love how James says this. I told you James talks about church discipline. He says this at the very end of his letter. And I think he's speaking about a congregational choice to act on the sins of brothers or sisters in Christ. Listen to his encouragement to those who would be tempted not to challenge someone's unrepentance. He says this, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings a sinner back from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Save his soul from death. Our study tonight has covered a lot of ground and we've got more to cover next week, but I want to review tonight and give you some thoughts and challenges to think about. Number one, God calls us as a congregation. This is not just the pastor's job. This is a congregation job. He calls us to mourn and to act on serious and outward sins of others who name the name of Christ. So you have to ask yourself this question tonight. What is your attitude toward the habitual and outward sins of other Christians in our church? Is there somebody you love that is persisting in sin and God wants to use you to issue a loving word of correction or encouragement? You know why most churches probably don't practice church discipline? Because they don't even practice church encouragement or correction. Everyone's sin is their own business and we don't talk about that. Well, that attitude is not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. In serious cases, we've seen that God calls the church body to remove someone from membership in Christian fellowship. And what our passage tonight reminds us is that we have the authority of Christ for this, dis- dis- this decision and his special promise of help. I wonder if you've ever thought about the incredible privilege of the authority of Christ that he gives to the church. But we also have seen that the church discipline is for the purpose of restoration. And what we've seen is that your relationship to this church body is for you to be a tool to help other straying Christians. Ask yourself this question. Who has strayed from fellowship with our church body? No, 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 not the people who left 10 years ago. No, 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 no. What about the people you haven't seen in three months? You might say, why doesn't the pastor call them? Well, I should do that, and I do that most of the time. But that's your job, not just mine. They sit in your section. You talk to them after church. You have enough of a relationship to say, hey, we miss you. Are you okay? Are you alive? Are you in sin and need someone to help you? I wonder, church family, 
if you just let people leave our church and never say a word about it? Lovingly, I want to tell you, that's not loving. You can't say you love the people who attend this church if you're willing to let them walk out the door without a, a, a simple word of correction or encouragement or just checking in. That's not loving. It's unloving. And our passage tonight calls us to have an attitude of love that is so deep that we're willing to risk our relationship for the purpose of someone else's restoration to Christ. And I'll tell you what, I know how excruciating that is. It's awful. It's so excruciating before you talk to somebody. I'll tell you what, I've seen God do miracles. God changed hearts in a way that I didn't really think would happen. We probably underestimate the power of Christ that is in those moments of loving brotherly correction from another follower of Jesus. It's a lot to think about. It's a lot to think about, and I encourage you to be back next week as we finish up this passage on part two of church discipline. If this precipitates any questions from you, I don't pretend to have covered everything. Please ask them. Um, if I get enough of those, I'd be willing to teach a whole other third part to help explain this. Um, but I, I think it's, it's necessary for us to address the subject comprehensively, and I may not realize the gaps that exist in my lesson. So let's pray tonight, ask God to help us honor his word and obey it as it's been laid out tonight. Father, we thank you that grace is so powerful that we must acknowledge that grace changes someone's life. That if we believe in the gospel that is taught in our Bible, that that gospel is so powerful, it, it requires a change of lifestyle. And so Lord, if someone is drifting significantly from what Christianity should be, Lord, we have a duty to lovingly correct them and try and bring them back to you. But I know all of us feel so inadequate to do that, myself included. But Lord, help us to rest in the promise of Christ's presence and grace to do this necessary ministry. Lord, I pray that you would grow our congregation's love for one another that that love would not just be an affection, but God, it would be a love that would be grieved by the sins of one another and a willingness and, and a desire to see one another arrive at the judgment seat of Christ prepared so much that we will speak and risk our relationship to help bring that person back to Jesus. I pray you'd help us with that. Lord, I pray that the spirit within us would be bothered not just by the sins of others, but of course our own sin. And it would lead us to action. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.